Tonight's talk is on conscious relationship, how our relationships can be a central part of the path of waking up. And it's the kind of time of year I end up liking to talk about relationships. There's something about uh, the days getting shorter and the darkness and that the holidays and rituals of all the cultures are really ones that are designed to bring people together and emphasize connecting and relating. And as most of us know, that doesn't always bring up pleasure and intimacy. It can bring up all sorts of anxiety and loneliness and so on. A lot comes up around the holidays for people. So I thought I'd explore that a bit tonight. And to begin by saying, some of you might know that in Buddhism, there's a phrase called taking refuge. And there's considered to be a triple jewel, three places that we take refuge. And you can think of this in Buddhist terms or more universally, that we take refuge in the Buddha, which is really our own awakened nature, that we are all on this path to reconnect with our true nature, with compassion, with wisdom. So there's taking refuge in the Buddha, There's taking refuge in the Dharma. The Dharma is the path. The Dharma are whatever teachings both reflect the truth and wake us up to the truth. So we take refuge in that. And then the third of the triple jewel is Sangha, our community, that we take refuge in relationships, that we exist in relationship, and therefore relationship and attention to relationship is intrinsic to our waking up. So it's this third refuge, relationship, community, that I'd like to speak to tonight. A phrase that always uh, rings true in a deep way to me is that of the third Zen patriarch, that enlightenment is to be intimate with all things. That it's not just some situations, certain circumstances that we experience great white light, but rather the awakened nature of being is to be connected with or in communion with all parts of living, all facets of our own beings and each other and the life around us. So it becomes a quite interesting question to say, what does it mean to be intimate? When you feel intimate with someone, What's going on? What has to exist for that experience to be there? For most of us, when we look closely, for us to feel a sense of intimacy, there needs to be understanding. We need to feel understood. Like there's some mutual reality of recognition of who we are. And there needs to be love. that that being that understands us loves us, or that we love the being that we're seeing clearly. Understanding and love. Let me read to you from Rilke. For one human being to love another, this is the most difficult of all our tasks, the work for which all other work is but preparation. It is a great exacting claim upon us, something that chooses us out and calls us to vast things. 
So hand in hand, difficulty and yet the call to vastness, to discovering our true nature. And what most of us find is this all leaps into action with the people we're closest with. The ones that are really, really close in are the relationships where we come against our edge, we experience difficulty, and also the greatest potential for communion, for touching that which is boundless. So if we look closer and examine the nature of difficulty, how come it's so difficult? Why do we keep encountering our edge with the people that are most dear to us, as well as many others? One way to understand it, at least that works for me, is to sense that love and understanding, these, the two wings of the bird that the Buddha described that allow us to be free, are the most basic elements that any child needs to be nourished. And as we all know, we all were given that in an imperfect way. No blame to any parents or culture, but it's basic and we didn't get it in the way that could be most wholesome or healthy for us in our growth. To the extent that we don't receive love and understanding early on, there's a closing off, a contracting, because it's so painful. That is the greatest suffering, to not feel that natural sense of connection with our environment. So we close down, we shut off, we, we try to push away and bury the part of ourself that feels so wounded. And in doing that, in disconnecting from an authentic sense of ourselves, we're forced to then create a cover story, a persona, that tries to go and get what we missed out on, but is disconnected from our essential self. This is Emily Dickinson. She describes this deep pain this way. She says, there is a pain so utter, it swallows being up, then covers the abyss with trance, so memory can step around, across, upon it. Most everyone I know in some way has that experience of going into trance, of dissociating, of disconnecting because of pain. Most everyone. And most everyone I know can relate to that sense of having some sort of a cover or protective shield of, of the who we are that we want people to see and believe and relate to. What's really interesting is to see what happens when we fall in what's called romantic love. And this is true also with friendship and with a lot of other relationships, but it brings into such clear relief how we have this shell and what it's like to get under it. When a person falls in love, what seems to happen is there's an intuition of being able to really have that unconditional acceptance, that sense of wholeness available. 
And for a while, there's a sense of enchantment or magic that that's possible. And there's an expansion. There's this, this, it's kind of like this seed all of a sudden expands, like, wow, yeah, I can truly feel whole and recognized and connected. There's enormous hopefulness. And then what happens, as most of us know, is we hit a wall. We hit the edge. Because any two people inevitably have conflicting wants and and trigger off each other's insecurities. So what has occurred is this deep longing for communion comes smack up against all our conditioning to mistrust, to feel we need to control, to suspect others don't really love us, to anticipate being abandoned. Now, right now I'm talking about in the context of relationships, but this is really the struggle, the squeeze that we all have on a spiritual path, is that uh, contrast between this intuition of our Buddha nature, of loving and communion and all that we do to open to that. We really want to live in a free and open-hearted way. And then the full force of all our conditioning to mistrust and shut down. It's that struggle. And that struggle becomes very, very clear in love relationships. It's been described that when we hit this edge in a relationship, and this edge meaning really wanting to open, wanting to let go into love, not wanting to sit in our old habits because they're so deadening, and yet not being able to really let go, there's almost a sense of chaos, like the whole system is wobbling. Chogyam Trungpa says, chaos should be regarded as extremely good news. In other words, hitting this edge, feeling the confusion and all the the craziness of it, of wanting to let go, wanting to open, and all our conditioning not to, is really the precursor to unfolding and opening in a deep way. John Wellwood, some of you might have heard of, writes a lot about conscious relationships and meditation. And he describes the process this way. He says that in early love relationships, and this is true in in meditation too, we experience the gold or the purity of our true nature. There's that period of, of of magic and of enchantment and so on. And then what we have is we discover we don't have full access to that gold. We've touched it, but then things start closing down. We don't have access. So he writes, it's still there. It's embedded in the iron ore of our conditioned patterns. And what we need is to go through a refining process in which the gold is extracted from the ore. I like that because this refining process basically says that the conditioning, all the troublesome stuff, is what the gold is embedded in. It's meant to be there. And yet, we have the capacity, the mindfulness and the care to be able to extract it. The refining really is the practice of meditation. And by meditation, not necessarily formal sitting practice, but the bringing of mindfulness and compassion to all the conditioned messiness of our human relationships. 
So let's look a little closer. When we examine our close relationships, we find that we really want other people to see us the way we want them to see us. We have a certain belief and story about who we are that we want other people to buy into. It's really important because we expect that their love, their respect, feeling safe, depends on people seeing us a certain way. So it becomes quite interesting to look at how we want people to see us and what we're afraid people are going to see. We all have this protective shell of a persona that's covering something we don't want people to see. You might want to try this for a moment if you'll reflect. And for those of you that have currently in your life a relationship that feels challenging, the rest of you can just meditate on your breath. <laughs> so to pick a, a challenging situation in, in a relationship in your life right now, or some circumstance with someone that is difficult, And just take a moment to get the feeling of that. And ask yourself, how are you afraid you'll be seen? And how do you want to be seen? keep reflecting and I'll just share with you when I do this kind of exercise with people some common responses are I'm afraid I'll seem needy I want to appear strong and confident I'm afraid I'll appear controlling I want to be seen as helpful I'm afraid I'll seem selfish I want to appear caring weak or weak versus strong and competent but I want to appear together I'm afraid I'll appear too available. I want to be seen as having some boundaries. It can go in any direction. What's important in this is to begin to be able to step out of our stories and see the wants and fears that drive us in our relationships. We can only start where we are with that. It's not that they're wrong, that they're there but rather that that is the stuff, that's the iron ore that's inviting our mindfulness, inviting our attention, that we be able to recognize what's there, identify it, name it. There's a tremendous freedom when we can see the patterns. Now what happens for most of us in in relationships is that we keep encountering it over and over again. So it's not like we have to look far. It said that the core stuff, the core patterns, the core so-called painful reactivities keep on rerunning and resurfacing. What changes is how we relate to them, how much presence, care, wisdom we bring to them. The challenge, though, is when stuff happens with another person, 
when the reactivities get set off, so we're wanting things to appear some way and we don't want this to happen and we're trying to control it, we get lost in the story and forget to look. For me, the biggest flag of getting lost in the stories in terms of relationships is when there's a lot of blaming and judging going on. It's just like this big light in the sky saying, I'm spinning out on stories, blaming and judging. And it's the greatest opportunity to be able to wake up when we catch on and we don't keep playing out those stories. I'll leave this out so you can look at it close up if you'd like. But in this little cartoon, there's a kind of Aboriginal or Native woman who's sitting in a thatched hut, and she's got pins and all these little dolls. And her husband's standing there saying, can't you get along with anyone? (laughs) (laughs) So we do that. You might notice that some weeks it's like there's pins in every doll of your life, including yourself. You know, it usually comes in big waves when we're blaming the world, when we're in one of those judging places. But it really is a flag. And I'll just share with you what happened this week with one client, because it was so uh, exemplary of this, uh, that after the holidays, she'd come back and, and was really upset at her sister's behavior. And her sister had been very critical of her, and, and, and in a sense rallied some other members of the family to also be critical. And, and she felt really deeply offended. And the basic stories that she was running through is, they don't understand, they don't care, and they do worse. You know, those are the three big ones. You know those? <laughs> so we talked and, and agreed it may be true. But the point was that all she was doing was spinning in that. There wasn't anywhere to go except the suffering of those stories. And so as I had her just sit down and into her body and heart and say, well, what's, what really is underneath them? What's the feeling? What's making you want to put those pins in each of the dolls, you know? And that's the question to ask yourself. How come I want to keep sticking these pins in myself or someone else? And what she discovered was just how much it hurt to feel pushed away, to feel criticized. She discovered how inadequate she was feeling about herself. She discovered a lot of fear she had about losing a sense of family, a lot of grief. And when she could stay with that enough, she had the eyes to then look at her sister and see in her sister a lot of insecurity behind the criticism. Her sister felt threatened. She couldn't see that when she was running the stories. And so it is with us that when we're angry and hurt, the stories that we tell ourselves about he said, she said, he did, he shouldn't have, she couldn't have, all the things we spin are very contorted and distorted by our fear and our anger. The only thing that makes us distort a story more is when we're really smitten by somebody. And that love is even blinder than anger sometimes. We can't access what's true and what's raw and what's messy and what's vulnerable as long as we're playing out these stories about ourselves and each other based on judgment. Not only are the stories 
incomplete. They leave out what's going on. They're often, as I just mentioned, really inaccurate. I mean, how often have we misread situations when we've been caught up in a certain mood and thought somebody was angry when they weren't or somebody was hurt when they weren't or somebody wasn't hurt when they were? We all do that. It's a real regular kind of thing. There's a lot of pain from misreading. We do a lot of crisscrossing. And in one way, you could say that really meditation is communication. It's the capacity to truly see clearly, listen deeply, touch fully, connect with what is. And yet we speak different languages. And we sometimes hear hear bits and pieces and just put it into a frame where we really misunderstand each other. The wires are crossed. So that can lead to pain. It can lead to confusion. It also can be lead to something that's amusing, and I'll just share with you. I really love these. These are some church bulletins where there were some misunderstandings. They were written in a foreign language, and that's why. One, don't let worry kill you. Let the church help. Remember, in prayer, the many who are sick of our church and community. (laughs) Thursday, there will be a meeting of the Little Mothers Club. All wishing to become little mothers, please see the minister in his study. (laughs) This is real. These these are real signs. This being Easter Sunday, we ask Mrs. Lewis to come forward and lay an egg on the altar. A bean supper will be held on Tuesday evening. Music will follow. (laughs) At the evening service tonight, the sermon topic will be, What is Hell? Come early and listen to our choir practice. (laughs) So misunderstandings. A really big way that they happen is that we carry around fixed notions of who people are. We just kind of lock in, oh, she's that kind of person, he thinks like that, she'll do this if I do such and such. And our notions don't change according to how the person really is. We don't really look. We just operate off of these files, these static files in our brain. We don't account for real changes that happen. In the case I mentioned earlier uh, with the sisters, This woman hadn't seen her sister for a number of years, and then she moved into the area. Well, when she knew her sister in younger years, her sister had been quite a confident person. Now she's in midlife and facing a lot of midlife drama and drama. That hadn't been seen. There's just a fixing. This is how this person is. At an aging conference, Ram Dass was talking about this a bit, about the changes going on, and he told this story. Oh, by the way, the, the uh, conference, the aging conference, was entitled, Be Old Now. <laughs> an, older man is, an older man is walking down the street one day when a frog jumps up on his arm and says, if you kiss me, I'll turn into a beautiful princess and do whatever you want. The man sticks the frog in his pocket and walks on. After a few more blocks, the frog croaks, Hey, don't you want to kiss me so I'll turn into your beautiful princess? The man says, at this stage of life, I'd rather have a talking frog. (laughs) 
So to relate mindfully in relationships, we have to keep on being here and noticing what's going on, dropping under the stories, under the blame, under our assumptions, and really checking out what is true. This becomes particularly important when we've locked into a sense of the other being an enemy. It happens a lot in politics that you can be very liberal and and peace-oriented and so on, but still have these really angry fixations on who's the enemy. And that was quite true for me. When I was in the the 60s and 70s, I did a lot of political work, left-wing work, and some of it was to do with organizing tenants and doing tenants' rights work. And um, the enemies, of course, in this case, were the landlords and the officials in the city that were, you know, trying to keep on raising the rent on the poor tenants. And so what we would do is we'd organize groups of tenants under one landlord and, and, and put the pressure on to be able to maintain a certain level of rent. And we also set up a big rent control campaign in the city. Well, what would happen repeatedly to us is we'd put a lot of energy into coordinating a group of tenants and a tenant leader would emerge, somebody that had some you know, charisma and was a good organizer. And then, and this happened almost every time after a certain amount of time when there would be some real strength to what was going on, the landlord would lower the rent or hold the rent steady for that one family, the leader, and that leader would then drop out of the group and everything would fall down. And each time we'd you know, the landlord was the enemy, and then we'd, then we'd all say, boy, what a spineless blah, 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 they couldn't, you know, and th- then the tenant that had crossed the line would become the enemy also. Well, it happened to me that one family I was particularly close with, and I knew a lot about the particulars of um, their situation. Their oldest son was in jail, and the wife had just been diagnosed with cancer and so on, and they were... Vi- and the husband in that family was, a really, um, was really dedicated and was re- working real hard with us. And sure enough, uh, he got bought off. You know, he, he also got co-opted to the other side. But this time, I couldn't do the same thing. I couldn't um, do my self-righteous political thing of, boy, you know, they can't stand up under the pressure. Where's the commitment here and so on? because I really knew that um, anything that could help in a moment of crisis, this person would do. And that was really a powerful learning experience of how if, I, if we're real distant, it's easy to blame and not see what would cause a person to do what they do. And yet if we look close up, anything a person does no matter how much it seems like it's causing trouble or others' difficulty, is done out of their own struggle and suffering. There's a, uh, some of you know, the author Carlos Castaneda, and he, he writes the books about Don Juan the Sorcerer, and he's a wise man, and gives instructions to Carlos. And in one of the chapters, there's a whole um, description of what it means to have a worthy opponent. Some of you familiar with that phrase, a worthy opponent? In this context, the worthy opponent is someone in your life that gets under your skin, that causes trouble, that aggravates, that in some way seems to undermine or just be a thorn in your side. And yet how that person is the very person that's there 
to actually catalyze enormous amounts of growth and waking up. So I, I thought that was a, a wonderful concept. And right before I had encountered that, I got into a situation that was really interesting. I had left political organizing for the very reasons I'm describing. There was so much uh, you know, good, bad, enemy, friend, and, and gotten into um, political I'm, I'm sorry, into spiritual life and joined an ashram and, and I and, uh, and several others were running a holistic healing center and a yoga center in uh, Harvard Square in Cambridge. And this was in the 70s and everything was really booming and people, I mean, it was just a huge amount of interest and enthusiasm about uh, spiritual work and so on. And so the classes were really full and there was a lot of energy, but there was one woman that would come to class every single time and everybody would seem to be blissed out, but then she'd ask these questions that were really like suspicious and mistrustful of what I was saying, and like, are you trying to recruit us into some cult group, and you know, that kind of thing. And I just, she, and she would keep coming every week, and like, I couldn't figure out, well, she's not liking this, why doesn't she just go away? And um, at this time, I was doing uh, my master's work in psychology, and I figured out that she must be very paranoid and this and that and and non-clinically I figured out she was a nuisance and you know I just wish she wouldn't <laughs> I just didn't I just wish she wouldn't come and then I read the Don Juan stuff and and this and then it clicked she was my worthy opponent you know this woman that was coming to class and and um, asking these kinds of questions and so on and so everything shifted I actually, she'd walk in the room, I'd go, ah, here she comes. And then I'd just watch what would come up and, and saw so much of my reactivity about how I, I needed, I had this incredible attachment to everybody liking me and trusting me and thinking things were good and having a good time. And if even one person out of many wasn't, it was, you know, my whole sense of okayness was shaky. It was really interesting to watch the shift on that. Um, we all have people like that in our lives. I mean, I've rarely had a season of life where there hasn't been somewhere that my own insecurities and stuff hasn't gotten triggered off. And what a much more interesting and fun way to do things, to recognize those as opportunities to learn and free ourselves in some way. For the most part, it's our biggest challenge to really face where we're uncomfortable, where we're raw, where we're confused, where things are messy. It's hard to face suffering inside ourselves and around us. And our conditioning and our habit is, if we can avoid it, we will. If we can numb out, we will. If we can distance, we will. If we cannot pay attention, that's what will happen. I was aware, had a really interesting experience with getting pregnant because I was aware of watching the news before I got pregnant and then, and some of you might have experienced this, the biology of chemistry, or the chemistry of pregnancy is, is real thin-skinned and much more sensitivity to suffering. And I remember um, watching almost the unbearableness of watching news shows because they became real. It wasn't like some 
foreign place, some person that didn't really exist, but it's like the sense of everybody being one's child. And, um, and then after, after being done with pregnancy, kind of coming back into this um, pretty habitual way of being able to distance or numb out to the horrors of the world. Uh, recently, this is another story, there were some articles some of you might have seen about, it took place in Seattle, Washington, about a man who was a bank robber. And he, for about four years, uh, did these elaborate ruses and was able to get away with robbing banks. And nobody could catch him or figure out who he was and so on. And then finally, they did a big sting operation. And, uh, and he wasn't caught at, during the sting. He was injured, but he got away, and a few of his accomplices were caught. And for several weeks, there was a big manhunt. And, and finally, they tracked him down. He was wounded, but, and he, he was hiding in a trailer. And they found him and surrounded the trailer, and he knew they were there. And he killed himself, and then they thought that the shot was an attack and the trailer was riddled with bullets and so on and that was the end of the story. And I had very vaguely heard about this story um, and then found out about four days ago that that person I had been reading about was the son of a very, very good friend. And uh, it comes from this area. In fact, the whole family does. And so all of a sudden this story became real. And because this was the son of a woman that I'm so close with, and being a mother myself, the horror of having something like this happen to your son, it's like all of a sudden, something I just read as a story, I went through obsessively, piece by piece by piece, as if this was my own son, and the horror of it was just really enormous. And had to talk a lot with other people that were friends, both of the man who had gone through all this and the rest of the family. What was amazing is not all, as we kept reviewing it, because we were all obsessed because it was so awful. Um, and I think that's part of the way our beings process things. We have to keep looking at them to really get them through our system. Um, what was really amazing is that first we, we went through this you know, sense of identifying with the horror of the mother losing her son, and then we really kind of got inside what would it be like to feel compelled to create that stimulation in your life. The criminal in all of us, the one that creates excitement in all of us, the one within me and all of us that's in some way running from the law, that feels illegal or like a criminal. And we took all the different parts, the, the part of us that feels ripped off by others, you know, that, that wants to bring justice. Um, it was an amazing process over these last days to feel that um, I could relate to each person in the drama and, and really um, feel them all and, and realize that that's kind of what I needed to be able to do, to feel a sense of um, really wholeness with it. So in that spirit, I'd like to read you a poem that most of you, or many of you might know, which has to do with becoming whole by recognizing all the parts of ourselves. It's called Call Me By My True Name by Thich Nhat Hanh. 
Do not say that I'll depart tomorrow, because even today I still arrive. Look deeply. I arrive in every second to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with wings still fragile, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, in order to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. I am the mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river, and I am the bird which, when spring comes, arrives in time to eat the mayfly. I am a frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond, and I am the grass snake who, approaching in silence, feeds itself on the frog. I am a child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks, and I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl refugee on a small boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands. And I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom in all walks of life. My pain is like a river of tears, so full it fills all four oceans. Please call me by my true names, so I can hear all my cries and laughs at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up and so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. If we can stop the world, stop the world of our stories and really see what's there. We can connect with a sense of wholeness which is really the pathway of healing. It starts with seeing what's right there. Alice Walker, who as many of you know, wrote A Color Purple, was one of the great ones of our time who's born witness to suffering, who's named what's happening, who's described the horrors of incest and child molestation and genital mutilation and much more. And she was asked a question, I think it's an important question that many of us ask, which is, how do you not get your heart broken on one hand and on the other not be completely enraged at the people causing suffering? Good questions. Here's her response. I think you feel all of that, and you just don't stay there. The most horrible thing in the world is happening, but by some miracle you were there at the beginning of seeing that stops. Seeing caring is the beginning of healing. If I didn't have the love of the people and of the earth and of the life force itself, I couldn't bear it. And yet if we don't bear it, 
we're less alive, we're less whole. Lao Tzu expressed something similar thousands of years ago. The invincible shield of caring is a weapon from the sky against being dead. It's our only refuge. If you look at the triple jewel, refuge in Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, it's all refuge in the heart. It's only when we really rest in caring that we can have room for all the joy and all the sorrow that is this life. Chogyam Trungpa describes this way of relating to the world in terms of spiritual warrior, that every situation that we encounter with each other, with ourselves, with our lives, no matter how difficult, there's always the possibility of going forward towards waking up, towards helping each other, and that what it takes is courage. The, the, the source of courage is greatness of heart. It takes great heart. And he describes this great heart as the awakened heart. If you search for the awakened heart, if you put your hand through your ribcage and feel for it, there's nothing there except for tenderness. You feel sore and soft. And if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel tremendous sadness. This kind of sadness doesn't come from being mistreated. You don't feel sad because someone has insulted you or because you feel impoverished. Rather, this is the experience of unconditional sadness. This sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely exposed. There's no skin or tissue covering it. It is pure, raw meat. Even if a mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. Your experience is raw and tender and personal. For the spiritual practitioner, this experience of the sad and tender heart is what gives birth to fearlessness. Real fearlessness is the product of our tenderness. It comes from letting the whole world tickle your heart, your raw and beautiful heart. You're willing to open up without resistance or shyness and face the world. You're willing to sit here and share your heart with the whole of life. Our practice starts right with the relationships of today to be able to open to the love that's there, to be able to open to what's difficult, and to be willing to not know what to do, to put down our habitual way of behaving and dealing and operating, and to simply feel into our own beings in a very honest way and touch what's there, what's vulnerable or confusing or raw, whatever it is. Pema Trojan describes that when it's difficult and we sit down in that way into our own bodies, it's like the feeling sometimes of a thorn through your heart. And that when we breathe in and open to that, when we really open, it actually creates more space. We make room for the thorn. And what happens is we become the space of the room that we have created. That is this 
shift or transformation in being that happens when we open to things. She writes, you have a sense of openness as if the wind could blow through it all. Tonight, I've talked a lot about the suffering that comes up in relationships, you know, what it's, what it's difficult. And the point is not to suffer. The point is to open to what's there, whether it's pleasure or pain, and become that open space that can let the wind flow through so we can truly allow love to happen in our relationships with each other. With practice, what we discover is that whenever we encounter what's messy, whenever we encounter our edge, we're really encountering the presence of the gold. It's the iron ore. We're facing it with all that gold woven through. And that's where the gold lives. It doesn't live in some yonder mountain where we can go and meditate. It's right in the messiness and rawness and vulnerability of what we call our edge with each other and with ourselves. That's the invitation. You know, Ramda describes the next message you need is right where you are. This body, these friends, these partners, these children. Right in these relationships, the gold is waiting for us. And it just takes a willingness to drop our habits, our stories, our blaming, and really, really care to pay attention to what it's like, moment to moment. So let's just take a few moments to sit together in quietness, if you will. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.